This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is sponsored by Dalkey Archive Press, publishers of The Obstacles by Aloy Uroz, a coming-of-age novel about two aspiring writers from one of Mexico's finest young authors, available wherever books are sold. For more information, go to dalkyarchive.com. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, a.k.a. the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 6th of May in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we're talking to Scott McLemy. He writes the Intellectual Affairs column for InsideHigherEd.com. He's also an award-winning book critic. He won the National Book Critics Circle Award for criticism a couple of years ago. We'll be speaking with McLemy about a column he recently wrote in which he suggested that everyone who uses a cell phone in a research library should be shot. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, our long national nightmare is over. Opal Meta is no more. That's right, after a week in which Kavya Viswanathan was found to have plagiarized three more best-selling novels, including a Salman Rushdie novel, as well as Meg Cabot's Princess Diaries and uh, Sophie Kinsella's Can You Keep a Secret, Viswanathan's publisher, Little Brown, said uh, her book's not going to be coming back to stores after all. And that's not all. Little Brown also said it was canceling her two-book contract entirely. A New Jersey newspaper where Viswanathan was an intern announced it was looking into articles she'd written while she worked there. The student newspaper at her college, uh, what's it called, Harvard, called for an investigation into whether she should be allowed to continue at the school. And while she was walking across the campus, somebody told her she was ugly, too. Uh, the Harvard Crimson's claim uh, noted that Viswanathan had officially changed her first name to Harvard student in her book bios. Her, quote, instances of plagiarism may have been unintentional, said the Crimson, but the book's association with Harvard was not. Salman Rushdie also seems to remain pretty pissed off at her. He said, quote, I know when I write a book, it's my name on the book, and so I must stand or fall by what I sign, and so must she, close quote. Of course, he probably doesn't work with book packagers who craft his book to fit a genre one would think they were familiar enough with to recognize material from the bestsellers in that genre. But in all the wealth of reportage about Caviar Viswanathan this week, there was not one further word about the packager who admitted helping the then 17-year-old Viswanathan write her book. Uh, That would be Alloy Entertainment, in case you forgot. Well, while you're at it, pity poor William H. Swanson, the head of the Raytheon Corporation. You'd think he was a Harvard undergrad. After more than a week of media silence greeted the initial revelation that he'd plagiarized a large chunk of his book, Swanson's Unwritten Rules of Management, from another book called The Unwritten Laws of Engineering by W.J. King, 
Well, uh, things suddenly got noisy for Swanson this week. After New York Times columnist David Leonhard noted that Swanson had not apologized and actually had been rather flip in his admission of the theft, as Moby Lives noted last weekend, Swanson issued a new statement in which he did use the word apologize, used it twice in fact, and then he blamed a staff member for the whole thing. Well, the very next day, Shades of Viswanathan, it was revealed that not only had Swanson ripped off 17 of the 33 rules in his book from the King book, he'd stolen rules one through four from something Donald Rumsfeld, of all people, had written, and uh, rule number 32 was swiped from a Dave Barry book. Well, the next day, Raytheon's board announced it had reached an embarrassment threshold and said it was withholding some pay raises and stock options that had been granted in 2005 to Swanson to the tune of about a million dollars, which will bring down his salary for 2006 to about $3 million. Well, that must have really stung. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, his book, which uh, Raytheon has handed out so far to over 300,000 people, is also being withdrawn. Tim Waterstone has dropped his attempt to regain ownership of the giant UK bookselling chain that he founded 25 years ago and named after himself. He says the HMV Corporation, which now owns the Waterstones chain, had imposed, quote, ludicrous conditions on negotiations. Waterstone complained angrily about the conditions, such as a 14-day due diligence investigation of his assets, but Waterstone and former Penguin UK head Anthony Forbes Watson had their own conditions for the talks, especially demanding that HMV drop its attempt to take over the Otakers bookselling chain. Both sides denied unfair conditions, of course, as meanwhile, Tim Waterstone's investment partners, Lazard European Private Equity Partners, discreetly withdrew from the bid, ending both parties' interests in continuing. It was a bittersweet end to the attempt by Waterstone, who not only owned, of course, his own namesake company at one time, but it had also been the head of HMV at another point. He said that if HMV ever dropped what he called penal preconditions, which sounds like something else entirely, he would remain highly interested in trying once again. Valerie Plame Wilson, the undercover CIA operative outed by Vice President Dick Cheney's office upon the OK of President Bush after Plame's husband wrote an article criticizing the Bush administration, is shopping for a book deal. According to a New York Times report by Motico Rich, hello Motico, Plame Wilson is only talking to a small group of publishers. And late Friday, Publishers Weekly reported she was close to a $2 million deal with one of them, but PW didn't say which one. Other big news coming late this week was the news that the friendly folks of the Frankfurt Book Fair were going to invade Britain to compete with the London Book Fair. The organizers of the Frankfurt Fair say publishers came to them to complain about the horrendous conditions of the Excel Center, the site of this year's London Book Fair, and asked the Frankfurt organizers to form a competing fair in downtown London. That's the version given anyway in a in a press release from the Frankfurt organizers, and they say that, well, that's what they're going to do. The Germans say that uh, they will organize a long-term agreement with the Earl's Court Exhibition Hall in downtown London, and that they will be supported, according to Frankfurt CEO Jürgen Boos, by such major British publishers as Faber & Faber, Random House UK, the Penguin Group, and others. They've christened the book fair, the book fair Earl's Court, 
and it will be held from April 16th through the 18th next year, just a few weeks after the traditional dates of the London Book Fair. After Michael Bajent and Richard Lee lost their legal suit against Random House claiming that its book The Da Vinci Code had ripped off their own Random House book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they were ordered to pay 85% of Random House's legal fees or 1.3 million pounds, not to mention their own hefty legal fees, and uh, they don't have it. The first installment was due yesterday, and when they asked the judge for more time, he demanded their financial records and warned that uh, he would bankrupt them if they didn't come up with the money. Both men claimed Random House was unfairly withholding royalties from them, and Bajan's attorney said his client, quote, was not a well man, and he's reliant upon his royalties in order to live. In reply, Judge Peter Smith demanded their financial records, including Bajan's royalty statements from his new bestseller, The Jesus Papers, which was released the same day as the paperback version of the Da Vinci Code. And he also demanded paperwork concerning the transfer of ownership of Bajan's home to his wife. And that's news to me this week. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, May 6th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is May 7th, and on that day, in 1812, the poet Robert Browning was born in Camberwell, just outside of London. Browning's first poetry collection, Dramatic Lyrics, failed to win over critics, but it did win praise from the respected poet Elizabeth Barrett. So began their fabled love story. In order to escape the sickly Elizabeth's tyrannical father, who virtually held her hostage, the couple ran off to Italy, where they married and lived happily for 15 years, writing poetry, much of it to one another, and producing a son, until, in 1861, Elizabeth died in her husband's arms. Monday, May 8th, marks the anniversary in 1899 of the inaugural performance of the Irish Literary Theatre, it opened with The Countess Kathleen, a play by poet William Butler Yeats. Yeats had been persuaded to help launch the theater by his friend and sometimes muse, Lady Gregory, a writer and collector of Irish folklore. Until 1907, Yeats both managed the theater's business affairs and wrote numerous plays that were performed there. His more experimental works were said to have sparked riots in the audience. Tuesday, May 9th, is the birthday of poet Charles Simic. Born in Belgrade in 1938, Simic was raised in Oak Park, Illinois, and published the first of many books of poetry, What the Grass Says, in 1967. Simic has said, quote, Poetry is an orphan of silence. The words never quite equal the experience behind them. We are always at the beginning, eternal apprentices. Wednesday is May 10th, and on that day in 1749, the 10th volume of Henry Fielding's picaresque novel, Tom Jones, was published. This rollicking comic epic with its huge cast of characters was considered by poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge as one of the three most perfect plots ever written. Thursday, May 11th, marks the publication in 1942 of William Faulkner's Go Down Moses, 
considered by many as his greatest collection of short stories. Friday, May 12th, marks the anniversary of the death in 1925 of the Imagist poet Amy Lowell. And Saturday is May 13th, and on that day in 197, excuse me, 1907, British writer Daphne du Maurier was born. Du Maurier wrote many romantic suspense novels, including the popular Rebecca, which was made into an Academy Award-winning film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock also directed the, the movie version of her short story, The Birds. And I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I've got Scott McLemy on the line. Scott, the great columnist. His column is called Intellectual Affairs at InsideHigherEd.com. Scott, welcome to Mobiliz Radio. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, you've written a really unusual column, even for you, um, in all the variety of your work. Uh, I was wondering if, rather than me describing it, you would read uh, the first few graphs of, of, of the column, setting it up for our readers. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly do that, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that this is, this is one of those things that like, you write in your head for months and months before you actually <laughs> ever put a word down. Um, and so I, I came to a point when I, I thought I had a, a column that, that was lined up for the week, and it didn't come through, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go ahead and, and write this, and if they take me away, then, you know, so goes it. Well, so far they haven't taken you away, which is a, which is a good sign. We'll we'll, we'll get to that. We'll right. Get to that. right. Um, okay. The decline of Western civilization proceeds apace. One shudders to imagine life in decades hence. A case in point: people now use cell phones and research libraries. Wandering the stacks, they babble away in blithe and full-throated manner, conversing not with their imaginary friends, as did the occasional library haunting weirdo of yesteryear, but rather with someone who is evidently named Dude and who might, for all one knows, be roaming elsewhere in the building, an audible menace to all serious thought and scholarly endeavor. This situation is intolerable. It must not continue. I have given this matter long consideration and can offer a simple and elegant solution. These people ought to be shot. <laughs> I am no extremist, please understand. No gun nut in a rural compound, no wild-eyed advocate of freelance vigilantism. Just a temperate and long-suffering citizen who has heard quite enough about the affairs of dude for one lifetime. Max Weber pointed out that one of the hallmarks of modernity is that the state retains a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. I have no disagreement with that principle. It just seems like time for it to be applied in a new way. The people who do the shooting ought to be suitably trained, tested, and certified. Their accuracy as marksmen would be demonstrated beyond all doubt. A poster at the entrance to the building would give clear warning that no cell phone conversations are permitted beyond a certain clearly marked boundary line. The consequence of violating this rule could be illustrated with artwork, perhaps involving some easily recognized cartoon character. Shooting with actual bullets might be excessive. If the budget permits, some kind of taser gun would be appropriate. Failing that, buckshot would probably do the trick. Admittedly, a rational person could object to my plan. Wouldn't shooting cell phone users in research libraries be counterproductive, you might well ask? Wouldn't that actually make the library more noisy? A fair point. Yes, it would, but not for long. 
<laughs> okay, well, that's just the beginning of it. Let's back up. Scott, we're in, you're, you're a scholarly man. You're an award-winning book critic. You, you've been a, a columnist on the, uh, uh, on the academic scene for a long time, a peaceful fella. Where in the world did this come from? Well, this came from uh, going to a, a research library, which I, I should, I mean, that's a bit of like academic jargon, I guess, and, and it, it specifically refers to a university library, but not just one that's on a campus, but that's really meant for, for professors and graduate students. It's got the, it's got the more out-of-the-way books in it. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily for undergraduates, you know, although I guess in theory, if they behave themselves, they should be welcome there. Okay. And so um, this is the kind of place where if you want to go read, you know, some incredibly obscure pamphlet from the 18th century, you can go and you have a chance of finding it and reading it. And and you, you expect, you know, to be able to do that work without, you know, as I say, having somebody wandering around saying, dude, I threw up at that party so much, <laughs> you know, and... Um, and 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 I'm I'm joking, but I'm not joking. I because understand. This literally happens. It literally, you know, you'll be sitting there. I, I like to sit down on the floor in the stacks and and, and you know read something I pulled off the bottom shelf. And uh-huh. you're sitting there concentrating, and suddenly this happens. And and obviously this is this is the way we live now. This is what happens when you have you know this kind of technology readily available. But you 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 kind of take it as part of the social contract that you will have to put off with certain things in a public space. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the kind of a you know a, a, a railway car or something, mm-hmm. um, subway or whatever, that you that you wouldn't in a library, which is supposed to be a different a different kind of space. Right. Um, and and an awful lot of this goes without saying, but obviously it doesn't anymore. And and now, insofar as you even do have uh, kind of rules for this kind of thing on Amtrak, for example, at least in the northeastern corridor, they have what is supposed to be called a quiet car. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the principle anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, it comes very close to shouting matches. People will, knowing that they're in the quiet car, will pull out the thing and start to use it. Right. And people around them, understandably, get very upset. And so... Have you, know, you seen those kind of confrontations oh, in sure. libraries? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, in some ways, the last straw in writing this column, or the last, uh, you know, the uh, catalyst where it was when my wife had been on, uh, you know, a trip on Amtrak and, and told me about exactly this kind of thing happening to where like everyone in the car was mm-hmm. screaming mm-hmm. but uh, i mean have you been seeing it in libraries have you seen people confront cell phone users in libraries i haven't i haven't i mean what i'm finding in in the library the one library that i use is that what's happened now is that there are a couple of rooms which are clearly designated as don't do it at all period they have signs like up, signs up. Mm-hmm. now that's better than nothing but um you know and, and and are people ignoring those signs? I, I'm finding that, that that is not ignored in there. Yeah. No, I mean generally it's pretty much it's pretty much followed. But it's the rest of the library. But the rest of the library is is you know open open field. Right. Um, and and as I thought about all of this, I mean I mean the initial response is kind of anger and hostility that mm-hmm. comes up to you. And I, as I thought about it more and more, I thought about how well that is the res- a, a visceral response. There's something more to it than that because, because as I go on to talk about in the column song, there there is um, a book by a, a German um, sociologist named Norbert Elias, right? Um, called the Civilizing Process. Before you get to that, let's back up. Sure. I mean, one of the interesting things I want to make clear to listeners is that in the column, you thankfully uh, get beyond the, the jesting aspect and process this 
as an intellectual, which starts with thinking about other uh, uh, writing trends. First of all, you talk about a guy named Theodore Dalrymple, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is a, a, a British essayist. Very cranky, who, conservative British it, essayist. Right, who you note. Um, it's kind of coming out of a, uh, how do you put it here, a grand tradition of reactionary cultural criticism regarding comprehensive misanth- uh, misanthropy as a justified inference from the available evidence about mankind, and it turns disgust into a systematic worldview. So that's where he's coming from, and right. I, I take it you were saying you started feeling like a Dalrymple in this that's situation. That's exactly it, and, and I, you know, I enjoy reading Dalrymple. I think he's he's off his rocker sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, at other times, uh, knowing that there is a, a kind of a, you know, there's a, it's the satirical view of the world. Mm-hmm. It goes back to Swift, and I'd originally thought of calling this piece A Modest Proposal. <laughs> my editor said, well, that's kind of been done to death. Why don't, why don't we call it The Silencer, which I thought was sort of brilliant in a way. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know... <laughs> So you move on from from the cranky uh, response to a more kind of you know aggressive research into what I can do about this, and that's where you were starting when I cut you off when you were oh, talking sure. about the civilizing process. Sure, it, it, the, the, we take it for granted that there are certain rules or certain behaviors that 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 follow rules that aren't necessarily formulated because you just take them as a given, mm-hmm. and. Um, because it takes a while to sort of pick up a sense of history, you, you have to go kind of read somebody who's really thought about this stuff hard to, to, to realize how much of what you take for granted mm-hmm. is a result of decades and centuries sometimes of mm-hmm. people learning to do things a certain way. And and this fellow Norbert Elias who published this, I hope I'm saying his name right, um, who uh, was a, a, a German-Jewish emigre who settled in London and became a, um, a kind of a fixture at the London School of Economics, mm-hmm. and who um, indirectly, I guess, was a, a, an influence on generations of, of, uh, of sociologists in England, published this book in 1938 called The Civilizing Process, where he, he talks about how um, table manners evolved over decades and centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes through and he looks at, at different kind of rule books that were that were formulated over over time, and he finds that that there's a kind of a steady increase in the amount of behavior that the individual is expected to um, control mm-hmm. while in a public setting. Mm-hmm. So, just to give an example, uh, there, if you look at a, a, a rule book, a kind of an etiquette book from the the Middle Ages, there will be a rule that says, "Don't spit into the water." Where everyone washes their hands, right? Spit to the side, right? And then you know, a hundred years after that, you're told, well, if you've got, if you have to spit, be sure to try to do it when nobody's looking, and then cover it with your foot, right? And then later, further on, it it becomes, you know, just just don't do it at all. Don't ever do it, right? Now he's got this argument that that uh, is kind of a macro argument about the way that. Over time, violence is more and more ceded to the state. Just a few people are authorized to use violence in a legitimate way. Other than that, you get punished for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so there's and also we develop more complicated kinds of social interactions over time. And so he's got this argument about how how the in, internalizing these kinds of rules sort of makes for a society in which violence is not something that most of the time. Mm-hmm. Is out in public and mm-hmm. you know constantly exercised, and most of the time you, it, it is understood that if you go into a library that you're supposed to be quiet. So mm-hmm. um, now clearly, what's happened is that is that 
some of those rules started to change. Um, not, again, through anybody sitting down and saying, hey, let's change these rules, but just by being sort of eroded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so keeping all that stuff in mind, I, I thought, well, it's, it's, not, it's not entirely accidental, you know, that my response to this is, is frustration and anger and his desire to see... I say this in a joking way, but it's one of those things where you, if you think about it, there's really no other way mm-hmm. other than having having people think that there is a potential for for really serious consequences mm-hmm. to get them to stop doing this behavior that is obnoxious. Now, you know, I'm... I'm you, you know, here in New York, in theaters, they, they, they can ticket people for this now. Is that right? Uh, financial uh, uh, punishment is... is, is uh, is being I don't I don't know how enforced the law has mm-hmm. been, um, but yeah, about a year ago that was uh, that was voted on here and and people got behind it in a big way, where um, basically if your cell phone goes off during a Broadway show they can give you a ticket and I think the fines are something like fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, uh, less than the ticket of the of the show. Um, so I don't I don't know how painful that is to people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, whatever works, although my way has the satisfaction of letting <laughs> off hostility, you know, well, at you least in imagination. And I've been surprised. I mean, we got, uh, I, thought, I thought, oh, you know, I, I've written hundreds of things over the years, and hundreds yeah. of yeah. just of this column. Yeah. I thought this is going to be the one anybody remembers. <laughs> you know? Well, I should, I should flag for readers that you then went on to write about Betty Page in your next column. But to go back to the civilizing process for a minute, mm-hmm. uh, you... You make a great analogy, actually, between the threat of violence that that control the development or influence the development of table manners and mm-hmm. the use of, of of knives and forks and spoons. Mm-hmm. Um, what what did uh, Elias have to say about that? Well, uh, this was this was one of those things in the course of writing it where suddenly a little light bulb went on because uh-huh. because uh, in in the the section where he talks about table manners. He, he points out how when, uh, you know, uh, uh, knives and forks and spoons are things we take for granted that you use when you're eating. But, uh, you know, if you think about it, if you go back a thousand years, that's not what people do. Mm-hmm. They, they just, you, you, you all sit around a big table and you reach and you grab something and you take a bite out of it and then you put it back when you're done. Um, and so when, when knives uh, and forks come on the scene, they're considered, in among, I think, the, the French nobility, it's considered this really, like, precious kind of, Ultra dainty, sophisticated thing, mm-hmm. and and kind of you know pretentious and artificial, but then it sort of filters down. Lower nobility start doing it, and then the bourgeoisie starts imitating the lower nobility, and it kind of kind of catches on. Mm-hmm. But Elias says, in, in keeping with this tendency to try to keep uh, to try to restrain the amount of violence, the fact that people are handling knives, and particularly if you think about about warriors, you know, uh, the knights and so on, sitting mm-hmm. around the table. Mm-hmm. You know, and and these are guys who are used to you know kind of a god uh, a, a soprano's type sensibility. If somebody's angry at somebody else, and you you know it's a point of honor that you mm-hmm. have to fight it out, mm-hmm. then then there become all the there there develop all these rules about using the knife, and you are discouraged as much as possible from using the knife. You should not use a knife to uh, eat your peas or whatever. You should you know only use the cut uh, things that have to be cut with the knife, and otherwise you use the edge of your fork to cut it. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is one of those things that in and of itself looks kind of meaningless. But Elias' argument is that because we uh, get used to, in order to have more complicated interactions, we get used to the idea that people will not respond violently, mm-hmm. 
then it makes sense that you would develop these rules where people then just at, at, at simply the level of do I do I pick up this knife or not? Mm-hmm. Your incentive is to not to do it. Your 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 kind of programming, cultural programming, is to, is not to do it very much. Um, and and it would be nice to think that somehow that could happen with a cell phone. Um, so that we develop an, an etiquette where your impulse is not to use it so much in public. Now, I, I, I don't know. I, this is this is truly where where it's. Um, I don't know. You're either preaching to the choir or you're talking to a wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I, my, my feeling is whenever I use a cell phone in public, I'm embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone in a library. But I mean, any any place in public, I just you know I don't consider this uh, something that that I want. You know, I, I cover it with my hand and I mm-hmm. talk quietly and mm-hmm. so on. And um, that's clearly not uh, a common right behavioral template anymore. Right. Um, what can you do about this? I don't know that you can do anything about it. Is, um, is this related? Uh, well, now we're kind of getting off subject a little bit, but is it related to, to it seems to me that people will use their cell phone um, when when they're actually threatening themselves with violence in another way, when they're driving, for example, mm-hmm. um, when it's actually kind of dangerous sometimes to be well, on that's, cell Well, that's, you know, you, you, can, you can never really underestimate, you know, mm-hmm. capacity to do incredibly mm-hmm. stupid Things. Well, that's true too. But yeah. when when Elias is talking about the development of the use of of the of the knife and the fork, mm-hmm. how how in the forefront is is the threat of violence? Is that is that what got people to develop this this etiquette? I mean, is he is he reading this into it in retrospect or at the time? Was this a kind of a generally agreed upon etiquette? Did society My have to step in and is enforce that this? This is something that Elias is, is interpreting from the materials mm-hmm. and um, and is is treating uh, kind of in a he's he's looking at it almost as a Freudian of saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, these are these are things that people developed without knowing necessarily if that's what they were doing. But mm-hmm. this is my best guess about what was happening. Mm-hmm. And and as with those kinds of things in general, you don't you know you don't want to. To overdo it, and and yet it's an interesting enough idea that um, that I, I found it sort of fun to play around with. And I, I really I should try to say for anyone who's who's hearing this and who hasn't seen the column or seen what I try to do that th- this was done in a, a really sort of a playful spirit of playing around with the ideas. I'm not making a serious argument that you know because people did certain <laughs> things in the 15th century, we should shoot people with stilettos now. Um, you, you do come down in favor of the of the, uh, of the stun gun rather than the. Uh, um, well, a friend of mine suggested that uh, that a poison darts might be a good idea, <laughs> and I hadn't really thought about that. But curare, I think you know. There's oh, now you're going the other way again. And the, the buckshot problem, of course, is that you might hit a bystander. Uh huh. Like so, you. Well, well, listen now, Scott. You've written a column that, for both your readers and my listeners, that you're talking about, you know, the ultimate sacred space. What are you hearing from librarians? Well, I, I noticed uh, in the, but we have a comments field um, after the, the mm-hmm. articles um, mm-hmm. at, at Inside Higher Ed. Um, I should say InsideHigherEd.com, uh, which is which is free to anybody who wants to come and take a look at it. Um, and, and also, there were comments in the, uh, in the throughout the blogosphere, including the the librarian blogosphere, which is a, kind of an interesting domain. People mm-hmm. um, might want to look into every now and then. Uh, and and I found. A, a surprise. I, I really thought somebody was going to say, "Hey, we should shoot this guy." <laughs> you know, <laughs> meaning you. You know me, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and and you know how would how would you like that? 
And I thought, well, you know, if, if people say that, then I'll, I'll just have to live with it. What I did not really expect was the overwhelming degree of positive response that I've gotten. Uh-huh. Except for one guy who, who said that, that because I suggested the taser gun, I was kind of a wuss. <laughs> um, he was a little more graphic than that. But, uh-huh. but you know, uh, overwhelmingly, I'd say people, it, it, it hit a nerve with people. And what, and what are librarians in particular telling you? Do they feel that their hands are tied? Is this something that they can uh, deal I, I, with? I, I don't have an impression that, that there's any really definite sort of policy thing mm-hmm. that follows from mm-hmm. it. I think that, I think that, that people just enjoyed seeing that they, that other people had a comparable level of frustration. And mm-hmm. some of the reference librarians talked about, about what it was like to, to try to be like helping somebody who's asking, you know, a question. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they're babbling on the cell phone mm-hmm. to someone, you know, mm-hmm. elsewhere on campus or something like that. Um, so I think they have, like, whole levels of frustration that are not available to the ordinary library, uh, you know. Right. Ever. Sure. Sure. Well, Scott McLemy, one of the great columnists on the Internet, uh, again, it's at the column is Intellectual Affairs. You can find it at InsideHigherEd.com. It is free. You can read the back columns. If you haven't checked it out already, you should. Um, and I hope that you uh, you may be the person now who has started uh, librarians discussing dealing with uh, de- the development of a, of a suitable etiquette for, for cell phone usage in telephones. I would like to say to think so, but as I say at the end of the article, the the the, uh, the thing I take from Elias's argument is that is that it is entirely possible that that sane kind of standards on this will evolve, and, mm-hmm. and it should certainly not take any more than two to three hundred years. <laughs> so, Scott, thanks so much for coming on Mobiliz. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> And that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guest, Scott McLemy, the author of the Intellectual Affairs column at InsideHigherEd.com. He spoke to us from his office in Washington, D.C. Thanks as well to our crew here at Melville House. That's engineer Andrew Steinmetz, as well as the editor-slash-reporters of Melville House, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and our publisher, Valerie Marians. We'll be back next week. We hope you will, too. In the meantime, don't forget... That whale is out there, man.